Section 16 of The Outline of Science, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Outline of Science, Volume 2, by J. Arthur Thompson. Chapter 13, Natural History 2, Mammals, Part 3. Food Getting Among Mammals. The great ant-eater, Myrmecophagia, of South America, comes out at night and with its exceedingly powerful claws, breaks into the earthen hills of the termites. Then out and in whips the thread-like sticky tongue, drawing hundreds of insects in a short time into the absolutely toothless mouth. The same kind of tongue is seen in other ant-eaters, such as the aardvark of South Africa and the oviparous echidna, which is also absolutely toothless. The whalebone whale, or whatever kind, swims open-mouthed, through the surface waters, engulfing myriads of small sea snails, and the like, in the huge gaping cavern. The small animals are caught on the frayed edges of the baleen plates, exaggerated horny ridges of the palate, which hang downwards, from the roof of the mouth. Every now and then the whale raises its tongue and brushes a multitude of the entangled creatures towards the back of its mouth, where they are gripped by the pharynx and swallowed. The water streams out, at the sides of the mouth, through the sieve of whalebone, but some of it would be apt to go the wrong way, were it not that the whale shunts its glottis, the opening to the windpipe, forward, to embrace the posterior end of the nasal passage. What a contrast is such a mouth to that of a toothed whale, like the sperm whale and the dolphin, with teeth well suited for seizing cuttlefishes and fishes. Yet it is interesting to notice that the whalebone whale has before birth two sets of teeth, which never cut the gum. The adaptations of the teeth of mammals to different kinds of food-getting are many, but from a few we may learn all. In the gnawing animals or rodents, such as rats, beavers, porcupines, and squirrels, the enamel is either confined to the front of the incisors, or it is much more strongly developed in front than it is behind. Thus the posterior part of the tooth wears away faster than the anterior part, so that a chisel edge is automatically formed. The lower incisors strike in behind the upper ones, and this keeps the enamel edge sharp. Moreover, these teeth are rootless, and go on persistently growing as they are worn away. In the gap behind the incisors, where canines should be, an enfolding of the skin into the mouth cavity separates a front portion from a back portion. Thus material which is being gnawed, but not intended to be swallowed, may be kept from going beyond the front region of the mouth. Some of the rodents, like the gopher, store what they gnaw in capacious cheek-pouches, and grind this with their back teeth when they get into a place of safety. No one can look at an elephant using its trunk without recognizing a new idea, the employment of the nose, and a prolongation of the upper lip as well, as a food-getting organ. This is nature's way, making an apparently new thing out of something very old, and it is evident, from the remains of extinct elephants, that the trunk or proboscis had a gradual evolution proceeding in correlation with that of the huge tusks which prevent the mouth getting close to things in the usual way. The efficiency of the trunk is greatly increased by a very mobile, finger-like process at the tip, which enables the elephant to handle little things as well as to lift great logs. The trunk of the elephant is a masterpiece, and the initial stages may be discerned not only in the evolutionary history, but in the short proboscis of the taper, and even in the sensitive snout of the pig which is used for rooting in the earth in search of food. There is a special snout-bone, prenasal, in pig and mole, but the risk of hasty interpretation in terms of fitness 
may be illustrated by the fact that the same bone occurs in the taper, which does not root in the earth, and also in tree sloths. The bone in question is probably a primitive feature, for the taper, for instance, is a very archaic animal. In such cases, like the elephant shrew, the proboscis, is a puzzle. We do not know its use. The elephant. The elephant type, now represented by two species, the African and the Indian, exhibits many zoological peculiarities, besides the familiar trunk and tusks. Thus the limbs are quite unique among living mammals in their straightness. They form vertical pillars adapted to support the huge weight of the body. But there is even greater interest in the ways of the creature. According to Sir William Baker, Wild Beasts in Their Ways, 1890, the African elephant can charge for a short distance at the rate of fifteen miles an hour, and keep up the rate of ten miles an hour for a long run. The tusks which form the weapons of the males in their furious combats are used by both sexes in everyday life for digging up roots for food. It is said that an elephant does not reach proper maturity till it is forty years old, and that it may live far over a century. It is one of the slowest of breeders, and carries its young for twenty-two months before birth. Yet we recall Darwin's calculation that after a period of seven hundred and fifty years there would be nearly nineteen million elephants alive, descended from a single pair. The cerebral hemispheres of the big brain are richly convoluted, and the creature is so intelligent that elephant stories are proverbial. Of its memory, of its capacity for learning both in peace and war, and of its practical judgment, there is no doubt. Chewing the Cud Some of the hoofed animals, such as cattle, sheep, and deer, illustrate an interesting peculiarity called chewing the cud, or rumination. These animals feed, as everyone knows, on grass and herbage, and it is often important for them to eat as much as they can in a short time. A choice patch must be utilized to the full, and there is always the danger of an attack from carnivores. So the ancestors of our sheep and cattle got into the habit of gorging themselves with hastily swallowed grass, and then of retiring to the place of safety, often with their backs against a rock, so that they could not be surprised from behind. There at leisure they rechewed their hasty meal. The so-called stomach of a typical ruminant, such as sheep or cow, consists of four chambers. The first is the capacious paunch or rumen, the internal surface of which is thickly beset with tag-like processes suggesting velvet pile. It is here that the grass is stored. It is acted upon by the salivary juice, which has followed it down, and there is also some bacterial fermentation. The second chamber, the honeycomb bag, or reticulum, is marked by a hexagonal pattern, and it rarely contains more than sappy fluid. The third chamber, the many pleas, or saltarium, has numerous plates filling up its cavity, so that the food has to pass through a kind of filter. The fourth chamber, the reed, or obesum, is the seat of gastric digestion. In fact, it is the true stomach, for the preceding three chambers turn out to be elaborations of the lower end of the gullet, or esophagus. This is known by the minute structure of their walls, for there is no confusing the non-glandular gullet region with the very glandular stomach region. What happens in rumination? The cow, lying slightly on one side, returns boluses of food from the paunch to the mouth, where they are very thoroughly masticated and moistened with saliva. If we watch a cow, we can see these boluses or rounded masses of vegetable matter traveling up the gullet with considerable rapidity. After the thorough chewing, the food is re-swallowed and passes down for the second time. 
the muscles of the gullet working in a manner the exact opposite of that exhibited when the boluses pass up. On the second descent the food skips the paunch in the honeycomb bag, there being automatic arrangements for preventing entrance, and travels along a groove into the menopes. Filtering through this third chamber it reaches the true stomach and is subjected to gastric digestion. Overloading a stomach sometimes leads to vomiting, an automatic means of getting relief, and although the paunch is not stomach, it is difficult to refrain from suggesting that the first part of the cud-chewing process may be a sort of normalized vomiting. Nowadays the whole series of steps is reflex or automatic, but it is interesting to notice that if the cow is disturbed in the middle of its cud-chewing, it is not a little put about, and is often unable to resume the process for a considerable time. Such disturbance is, of course, injurious to the animal's health. Weapons of Mammals Many mammals use their teeth, especially their canines, as weapons. The walrus strikes downwards with tremendous force. The wild boar lunges upwards with the canines of both jaws pointing up. In the Asiatic babarusa, the upper canines, though pointing up, are curved so far backwards that they form more of a shield than a weapon. In male musk deer, and in the likewise hornless but quite unrelated deerlets, the canines are strongly developed and are used in fighting. In elephants, the great tusks are front teeth or incisors. The use of the six-foot long left canine of the male narwhal remains obscure. Besides their teeth, mammals may use as weapons their claws and their hoofs, and various kinds of horns. The rhinoceros has a horn that belongs wholly to the skin, like a huge wart that has become very hard. The horns of cattle, sheep, and deer have a core of bone, growing from the forehead or frontal, covered by an integumentary hollow sheath or horn. In the giraffe and the okapi, the sheath over the gray outgrowth does not turn into horn. The Story of Antlers Antlers deserve a place by themselves. They are restricted to stags, with the single exception of the reindeer, where they occur in both sexes. They are not seen in the buck's first year, when there is only a small, permanent, skin-covered, bony outgrowth on the forehead, called the pedicle, which grows in girth in subsequent years. In the second year, there is an extraordinarily rapid multiplication of bone-forming cells on the top of the pedicle, and a short, unbranched antler is formed which carries upward the hot skin or velvet. The blood vessels in the velvet supply the food which admits of the rapid growth of the skin, and they also keep the growing antler tissue suitably warm. The materials for the growth of the antler itself are brought by internal blood vessels from the pedicle or stalk. Branches from the fifth brain nerve run up the velvet and make it exquisitely sensitive, an adaptation that saves the stag from knocking the still soft antlers against hard objects. In ordinary deer, the antlers are as transient as the leaves of the forest. They drop off, and there is a new growth next year. The second antler has a stem and one branch or tine, and a new tine is added each successive year until the stag reaches maturity, after which the antler growth becomes irregular. The shedding of the antlers is an extraordinary process. It is prepared for from the start by automatic arrangements which cut off the supply of blood from the velvet, obliterate the internal blood vessels, and form at the base a soft tissue which loosens the organic connections between the dead antler and the living pedicle. The dying away of the base of the antler would be called disease in other animals. It has become mysteriously regularized in stags. The whole process is extraordinary. The growth of a fine head, perhaps seventy pounds in weight, takes place in three months, 
an expensive utilization of material called into activity by chemical messengers hormones from the reproductive organs the splendid result is hardly finished before the operations begin for its being shed and after all the antlers do not seem to be of much practical importance they are exuberant outcrops of the male's virile constitution perhaps they have their counterpart in the male narwhal's spear the red deer britain has lost the reindeer and the giant deer a fine creature of the ancient forests but it still has the red deer service alaphus which is genuinely wild in some parts of the country it stands about four feet high at the withers and the veteran stag has truly magnificent antlers which are called royal when they have over twelve points or branches the stags are very combative at the breeding season september and october and may be dangerous to man they are greatly excited and roar loudly challenging other males in their ferocious combats they push with the antlers as a whole or they stab at the heart and belly with the lowest branch or brown tine which points forwards and upwards a good deal of use is also made of the hooves especially those of the forefeet each stag tries to attach to himself as many females as he can the fawn is born in may or june spotted as in most deer it is carefully guarded by the mother who teaches it to conceal itself when it hears the danger signal a tap with the forefoot in the summer months the hinds and fawns usually live apart from the stags and often at a lower level although we associate the red deer with the highland hills to which they are well adapted in their strength and swiftness of limb in their close-set coat and in their wonderfully keen senses of smell sight and hearing they were originally forest mammals rather than mountain mammals they feed mainly on soft grass and heather shoots but they have interesting vagaries of appetite such as gnawing at the cast-off antlers like the reindeer of the far north they sometimes travel a long distance to get an early morning lick at the rocks on the seashore protective adaptations some of the archaic mammals show a remarkable development of armor the armadillos are unique in having a bony skin skeleton which is almost invulnerable especially when the animal rolls itself up thanks to the flexible rings in the armor into an unopenable ball very striking is the tiny pistiago from barren grounds in south america it has a bony carapace above and on its underparts very beautiful snow-white hair it has enormous nails on its fingers by which it is able to burrow very rapidly and its hind parts have a special very decorative shield hardly less striking are the pangolins manis with the body covered with very hard overlapping scales or horn suggestive of a reptile rather than of a mammal there is an indian ocean porpoise which has calcified scales all over its back and as these are larger before birth than after it seems safe to interpret them as legacies from a very distant scaly ancestry it seems that our common porpoise has sometimes very hard tubercles in its skin and perhaps this also illustrates the hand of the past living on in the present but there are other kinds of armor besides scales the porcupine has its long spines the hedgehog its short ones and the spiny ant-eater its intermediate between the two even in the hide alone there may be considerable strength of armor as in rhinoceros hippopotamus and elephant in many cases no armor is required for the creature is endowed with relative invisibility as we have seen in a previous chapter nocturnal mammals many mammals of long pedigree have adopted a nocturnal mode of life which gives them additional safety in circumstances more difficult than those to which they were primarily adapted 
thus the otter and the badger owe their survival partly to their nocturnal habits but it cannot be said that they are in any very marked way adapted to walking in darkness the story of the badger the badger melis taras has still a firm footing in various parts of britain such as devon and the new forest it is a thick-set round-backed rather bear-like carnivore somewhat over two feet in length with an additional seven inches of tail it has a long muzzle well suited for its restlessly inquisitive poking into holes and corners the short rounded ears are not in the way in the brushwood there are bright bluish-black eyes there is below the tail an odiferous gland with a disagreeable smell the badger stands alone among british mammals in having the under parts darker than the upper for the under surface is black while the upper surface is tawny overlain with gray darkening here and there the head is practically white divided by a broad black band beginning between the nose and the eye and extending back to the ear in short the coloring is rather conspicuous recalling the american skunk but the badger is elusive and though it has few enemies it will work its way in the dusk down a dry ditch or along the side of a hedgerow rather than across the open the heavy body does not seem to be lifted much off the ground the snout is often held very low the soles of the feet are entirely on the ground in true plantigrade fashion yet the badger's movements have an easy swing and the creature does not know what it is to be tired when we ask how the badger manages to survive in a much cultivated and far from friendly country part of the answer is in the words nocturnal and self-effacing, and possibly evil-smelling. We must add, however, that the badger has strong positive qualities. It is very muscular. It has a strong heart and a good wind. The grip of the lower jaw is unsurpassed in tenacity. The thick coat helps the badger to withstand the cold of winter. It stores a good deal of fat. It is endowed with keen senses, shrewd intelligence, and a capacity for taking things easily without fuss or worry and yet this is not all it has an extraordinary catholicity of appetite which always makes for survival if one kind of food fails it can fall back on something else roots and fruits nuts and truffles worms and grubs frogs and snakes eggs and young rabbits the grubs and the wasps nest for the badger is impervious to stings and the honey from the humble-bees store another factor is its borrowing habit for its earth or set goes far in and may have several entrances it is made comfortable with bracken and herbage and is kept fairly clean moreover one must attach survival value to the education which the mother badger gives to her silvery gray cubs they are usually just two or three of them born in spring when they have got their sight some ten days after birth and had their usual gastric education on milk they are taken outside the warren and well groomed then comes schooling and the mother is a stern disciplinarian she punishes the inattentive and foolhardy and gradually instructs them in the way in which they should go the hedgehog the hedgehog is an old-fashioned insectivore that holds its own well from britain to the ural mountains it does so in virtue not of brains or of weapons but because of other fitnesses many of the hairs have been transformed into sharp spines which are erected by the smooth muscles at their base when the animal is touched they also serve to break the force of a fall when the hedgehog a good climber tumbles from a wall or a tree a very strong dome of muscles beneath the skin rolls the animal up into an unopenable ball the senses are acute the prolonged snout is well suited for probing into holes there is a wide range of appetite earthworms grubs slugs and small snails and the mountain-top like cusps on the back teeth are well suited for crunching these the constitution is very tough and if the adder 
an inveterate enemy of the hedgehog, gets a bite in, the venom has no effect. Experiments with poisons, and with such germs as that of diphtheria, have proved the refractoriness of this common creature. Although it has few enemies, it adds to its safety by resting during the day in a well-hidden recess and hunting by night. There are often two litters, usually of three or four, in the year. And the young is one curious flat and feeble creature, with soft white spines pointing backwards, and a pale blue-gray skin. It is not for some time able to roll itself up, yet it develops quickly, and is able to follow the mother in a month or two. Hibernation Many creatures, such as reptiles, amphibians, snails, and insects, pass into a lethargic state when winter sets in, and lie low until the spring. But it is only in mammals that we find true hibernation, a very peculiar physiological condition which is not sleep, nor necessarily connected with winter. It is exhibited by hedgehog and hamster, dormice and bats, marmot and suslik, the spiny anteater of Australia, and the juboa of the Kurzig steppes. To understand the hibernation of so-called winter sleep of these mammals, it is necessary to recall the main facts in regard to animal heat. Inside, the body heat is produced by various chemical processes, but mainly by the muscles. It is of great importance in facilitating the operations of the living laboratory, but the heat tends to be lost by radiation into the outer world through the skin and in the hot breath and in sweating. The non-conducting fur in ordinary mammals and the blubber of whales lessen the loss from the skin, as do the feathers of birds, but there is in birds and mammals a self-regulating system which keeps the temperature approximately constant day and night, year in and year out, and this is what is meant by warm-bloodedness. The regulating center is in the brain, whence orders issue to the muscles, blood vessels, and skin. If too much heat is being produced or lost, an adjustment is effected. But all mammals are not perfect as regards this heat-regulating arrangement, and it is among these that hibernation occurs. A good example may be found in the spiny ant-eater, Echidna, whose temperature may vary 10 degrees centigrade, according to that of the outside world, whereas our temperature varies only by a fraction of a degree as long as we are in good health. Now the spiny ant-eater is a hibernator, and this is the clue we need. Winter-sleeping mammals are imperfectly warm-blooded. When the cold weather sets in, it becomes difficult for them to adjust the debtor and creditor account as regards heat. They cannot produce enough to make up for their loss, and they give up the attempt. They sink back into a state of comparative coldness and cold-bloodedness. They relapse into the ancestral reptilian condition. But if the imperfectly warm-blooded mammals which we have mentioned were to fall asleep in the open, their body temperatures would go down and down and they would die. What they must do is creep into some sheltered nook or comfortably blanketed hole, where the temperature soon becomes much higher than that of the world outside. To this temperature, that of the sleeper's body approximates, without there being any fatal results. Along with the snuggling into a confined space must be taken the great reduction of internal activities. And here hibernation approaches the lethargy of frog and tortoise. Income is nil, so expenditure must be reduced to a minimum. The heart beats feebly, the breathing movements are scarcely perceptible, the excretion or filtering, which is the work of the kidneys, comes to a standstill. The hibernating body is like a fire-well, banked up in its own ashes, and in an animal like the hedgehog, we know that subtle changes come about in the recesses of the tissues. The gist of the matter is to be found in the three facts. 1. 
constitutional imperfection in the temperature-regulating arrangements, two, a creeping into a confined space which gets warmed up a little, and three, a great reduction of expenditure, for even the internal activities come almost to a rest. But there are some contributory influences which must be recognized. After the hard work of summer there is naturally some fatigue and a bodily bias towards rest. Moreover, summer has often been a time of plenty, and the body has accumulated stores of fat and other reserves, which may also incline the creature to somnolence. And once the quiescence has begun, it will tend to continue, for the closeness of the retreat must be soporific, and the cessation of the kidney functions will tend to keep the sleepers sleepy, just as drowsiness sometimes sets in when man's kidneys are not working rightly. So in the hibernating mammal, there may be a poisoning of the body with its own waste products, a sort of auto-intoxication. Yet this is not all. We must not think of hibernation as an individual reaction merely. It expresses a racial rhythm. In the course of thousands of generations, a certain periodicity has been established, like that of our sleepiness at night and wakefulness in the morning. And with the unregistered bodily rhythm, there is associated an instinct which prompts the hibernator to seek out a comfortable corner where the weariness or sleepiness sets in. For ages, it must be remembered, our hedgehogs have not known any winter. They have slept through them all, just as the migratory birds have circumvented them all. It must be remembered, too, that the winter sleep or hibernation of an animal like the hedgehog cannot be distinguished from the summer sleep or estivation of the tenrack of Madagascar. Only a few mammals are hibernators, and some of these, like the dormouse, are light sleepers, while others, like the hedgehog, are deep sleepers. In any case, there is some imperfection in the warm-bloodedness, and what has been wrought out is what we might call a rather neat way of making a strength out of a weakness. There is a relapse to a reptilian condition, but this handicap is counteracted. For it is not merely that the difficulties of the winter, scarcity, cold, and storms, are circumvented. The hibernation gives an opportunity for a long rest, which even the food canal may be the better for. There may be an opportunity for processes of recuperation or rejuvenescence to stave off the processes of senescence or aging. Why then are there not more hibernators? The answers must be that hibernation is the answer back made by certain creatures with a constitutional peculiarity. Other mammals meet the winter in other ways. End of part three of chapter thirteen.